Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Dr. Amira Sankey is a specialist plastic surgeon working in Cogra, New South Wales. She qualified as a specialist plastic surgeon in 2011 and currently trains plastic surgery registrars at St. George Hospital in aesthetic surgery. Dr. Sankey is also the vice president and chair of education of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, responsible for organizing the annual educational events of ASAPs. ASAP's education is credited with keeping the plastic surgery community connected and well-informed, leading to better patient safety and satisfaction. Dr. Sankey has been instrumental in ASAP's media and lobbying campaigns for the public to know the difference between qualified surgeons and cosmetic doctors. Dr. Sankey has a special interest in body contouring after massive weight loss and has presented locally and globally at plastic surgery meetings on the topics of aesthetics and reconstructive plastic surgery. I'm so honored to host Dr. Sankey on this episode so that we can really deep dive into all of the changes surrounding cosmetic enhancement and cosmetic surgery. Dr. Mira, welcome to the show. It is an honor and a pleasure, and I feel like this is a date with destiny because This has been meant to be happening for a long time, but you've had your hands full. Yes, yes, we are all living really busy lives, right? So I'm so not only are you a specialist plastic surgeon, (laughs) but you are also the deputy president of the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, and you are responsible for all of the education and training elements that the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeon members undergo throughout the year as well as being a a specialist plastic surgeon running your own clinic. So I feel deeply, deeply inadequate in your uh, presence because I think I'm busy (laughs) juggling my own simple life. Look, women are amazing now. And every time I read another um, person's CV or even just speaking to my patients, everyone is just so accomplished and have fingers in so many pies and doing so many things. Um, you know, women are just amazing what they manage to achieve nowadays. And I look up to, I look up to all the people around me. Dr. Mira, you are, you would have to be pretty passionate about education and patient safety to take on the additional role that you have. And I think that, you know, it is such a timely conversation for us to have when, before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, the changes in the advertising guidelines, in uh, labelling guidelines, in communication when it comes to the uh, use of the word surgeon Mm. uh, into uh, the realm of cosmetic uh, aesthetics and cosmetic uh, surgery. But even though you and I maybe think we've heard it all before, there are people who are going to come and listen to this podcast that don't know what a monumental shift has happened in Australia since July 1. And I'm wondering if you could just summarise the great feat that was accomplished July 1 of this year. Yeah. So I guess cosmetic surgery went through a really bad time and we sort of had this perfect storm where we had a boom in cosmetic surgery that was mostly related to the boom in an unregulated advertising industry. So lots of TikTok, social media, website, people were being bombarded with the suggestions of improving how they look. And then on top of that, we had unregulated doctors. And in fact, doctors who weren't even surgeons capitalising on this moment and practising cosmetic surgery even though they didn't have qualifications. So, of course, in this perfect storm, what's going to happen is that we're going to see a rise in complications um, and we're going to see a rise in botched patients and very unhappy patients and patients whose lives have been destroyed um, by this, uh, what they thought was a good idea but was actually really poorly thought. So ASAP's noticed this um, and... All because all of our members were sending in the stories and we wanted to do something about it. And then the media noticed it as well. And then, of course, there were also whistleblowers like Madison Johnston who noticed it. 
And this all came to a head when the medical regulator, APRA, finally said, okay, maybe we need to do something. Um, and their hand was forced. Their hand was forced and they sought public consultation. And out of that public consultation, they've come up with two sets of different guidelines. So we now have from July 1, the guidelines for July 1, 2023. I'll just 2023. clarify in case yeah. you're listening to this. Super, super time. recent. Um, the guidelines for registered medical practitioners performing cosmetic surgery and cosmetic procedures, so that includes injectables. And also we have the guidelines for registered medical practitioners advertising cosmetic surgery and cosmetic procedures. So what these guidelines have offered is a framework that we all have to stick to that is now law. So these guidelines are not just guidelines, they're law. So if we don't follow them, the consequences are that a doctor would be prosecuted or their um, registration status would be suspended or pulled. So the consequences are quite significant. And this is all in the name of patient safety. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here because yeah. until I, and I'm adjacent to this industry, and I'm certainly, um, I would consider above average informed. I, I attend the ASAP's non-surgical uh, symposium. I just came back from Fresh Life. I read a lot. I interview the best doctors in the field. I have access to the press releases that come through. It wasn't until I saw the uh, breakthrough stories uh, on surgeons or actually doctors that weren't even surgeons calling themselves surgeons behaving badly, for example, the wildly disrespectful and dangerous videos that were recorded and broadcast mm. on social media, doctors dancing while performing surgery, uh, what looked like super unhygienic practices in these um, clinics that whistleblowers shared with the authorities. It wasn't until then that I even thought in the that there would be a realm of possibility in a country like Australia that this could happen and it can go unchecked. And then when the whistleblower news came through and when, you know, we watched all of this unfold, the thing that kept running in my head, and again, I'm talking from someone who is above average informed on this subject, mm. is that, oh, they're rogue cowboys. The big leap for me happened July 1 when I thought, actually, you don't have to be a cowboy to be on the wrong side of the law on this. You could be performing your surgeries quite safely without too many adverse events. But the fact of the matter remains, you're not trained and you're not qualified. And mm. so somewhere down the track, even some of these doctors who are not doing dances while they're performing surgery or maybe not storing fat in a fridge in their clinic, they're still not qualified to be performing these highly risky, very technical procedures. And that for me was the big leap that July 1 cemented. That it doesn't, I don't have to wait for someone to be acting like a lunatic. Mm. Anyone who's not qualified shouldn't be doing these things. Look, I think you've nailed it. That's pretty much the problem in a nutshell. And when I see patients coming to me for second opinions after their surgery has gone terribly wrong, there's always two consistent features. The first is they had no idea their doctor wasn't a surgeon because why in this highly regulated industry in Australia where there is so much red tape, we put red tape on the red tape, why would anyone in Australia ever think that it was possible for a doctor who's not a surgeon to practice surgery? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is they look back on it and there were so many bells, there were so many red flags, so many warning signs, but they were so caught up in the advertising, in the glossy rooms, in the fantastic sell of the team around that doctor that they were blind. They, they couldn't see all the little warning signs to stop them from going ahead. And I think as a culture, as, as a species, we're a hierarchical culture and mm. uh, we've put doctors at the top of the food chain. Yes. So 
Yeah. They're who we go to to save us, to protect us, to help us, to soothe us, to make us better. So there are two things. So we've got this cognitive bias that the the doctor is above us in integrity and irreproachable. And secondly, we've got this thing where we're too embarrassed to challenge the doctor because we go, well, I'm hardly in a position to challenge a doctor, a medical expert, a surgeon. And so, yeah, I, I would find it very difficult to walk into a doctor's office where all the degrees or the qualifications mm. are displayed in the background. Uh, the clinical practice looks beautiful. As you said, the whole team is supportive of the messaging and the branding uh, of this practice being safe, ethical, qualified. And then you're in the room with your surgeon or doctor and not knowing this doctor isn't a surgeon, he or she is suggesting a procedure that I, I can't imagine at what point a normal patient would say, hang on a second, I'm going to handbrake on this. It's really a big ask to leave that responsibility to the patient. I think it's, it was, uh, you know, it was a wild time. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And, and, the great thing about these regulations now is that it's removing all the all the paraphernalia. Do you know what I mean? So now we have to state our correct title. You, if you, if you're a, uh, if you're not a surgeon, then you're probably a registered medical practitioner. Whereas I introduce myself as, "Hello, I'm Dr. Amira Sankey. I'm a specialist plastic surgeon." We have to state our titling. We have to state our qualifications. And it's so simple now that that should be the first thing that the patient listens for the minute they walk in and meet their doctor. And it should be the first thing you look for when you're looking at a doctor's website or their social media to know the difference between whether you're seeing a specialist plastic surgeon or a cosmetic doctor who has no further training beyond medical school. Okay, so that that was going to be my next question. What is the difference that makes the difference? So your campaign, the education campaign that ran before yeah. the July 1 changes was called Know the Difference. But how do we know the difference? And what is the difference between a medical doctor who is still a highly esteemed, highly educated, uh, wonderful part of society and contributing in many, many ways. But what is the difference that then allows them to call themselves a specialist plastic surgeon? What's What have we missed? It's such a simple thing. The difference is that we have the surgical qualification of F-R-A-C-S, FRAX, so five letters. And when you look at before July 1, when you look at a lot of cosmetic doctors' sites, they'd have like 50 letters after their names and yes. they were all meaningless. You know, they could have been a weekend course that they did in liposuction. Um, so the only letters that actually say that I'm a surgeon are the FRACS, which is the diploma that's awarded in surgery by the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And that is the only accredited surgical scheme in Australia. And how long? Do you have to study additionally for that yeah. uh, title to be yes. awarded to you? So, so medical school, for example, I did six years of medical school. Um, and then after that, I did internship, two years of basic surgical training, two years of advanced training in general surgery, four years in plastic surgery training. And I also slipped in a PhD in there and had a year off for that. When I added all together, it was nine years, nine years after my six years in medicine. So nine years after your six years in medicine before yeah. you actually even move forward as an independent Correct. specialist plastic surgeon. That's right. So That's it's 15 right. years of training. Yeah. Yeah, it's 15 years of training. And that's compared to a cosmetic doctor calling themselves a cosmetic surgeon who can finish medical school yesterday, watch a YouTube clip on how to do breast augmentation today, set up clinic and start putting in breast implants the day after. So there's quite a difference in training there. And it's not just about the surgery and knowing how to do the operation. There is so much to knowing about 
how to look after your patients beforehand, how to deal with the operation itself, how to deal with all the complications should they arise, and then, of course, how to care for the patient afterwards. Surgery is not just about knowing how to do the procedure. There is so much education that we go through that surrounds the whole process of surgery as well. I'm, I learned something really crazy when I was doing the research on this, and it was it was relating to the overnight stay component of surgery. So if you are not a specialist plastic surgeon, what is the what is this rule regarding overnight stay that a normal like a doctor who isn't a specialist plastic surgeon can't access? Yeah. So the tricky, the obvious question to ask is, okay, so there are these doctors who aren't really surgeons. Well, why would a hospital accept them operating there? Yes, right. I, I need to so, know this. Yeah. So the way around that issue is for a doctor to then just do the operations in their back room in their procedure room um, under the radar or to use smaller facilities where, you know, they can just kind of avoid detection. Um, because, what again, these facilities, facilities? I'm, I'm really curious, what do you mean smaller facilities? Like a like... mini hospital, a day surgery, something like that. Wow. So part of looking for um, a surgeon is to know that that surgeon is not just qualified and has the FRACS, but also that they're working in a licensed hospital, um, so a hospital that meets a certain standard. But how would you know? How yeah, would a consumer You ask know? them. You ask them. You ask them. And on that hospital's website, it will also say their level of accreditation and licensing. Um, so that's actually another thing that we now have to do. When we meet a patient, we have to tell them which hospitals we work in. And I suppose the alarm bell would be if they're trying to take you to a little procedure room in the back of the office or, um, you know, a hospital you've never heard of or something that just doesn't look quite kosher. You know, that's when that's when it raises the red flag. So when it comes to those smaller hospitals, they can't keep the patient in overnight. And more importantly, a lot of cosmetic doctors had no means to look after the patient if they did have a problem after the surgery. So we saw the situation where um, as part of the whistleblowing process, there was a patient who had a problem with their liposuction and they were That's trying to- right. That was the story that was so terrifying. Yeah, and they had to call their own ambulance. You know, what a frightening situation to be in. That doctor should have the responsibility to then admit the patient for further care and investigation. So a specialist surgeon has the ability to then refer that patient on for a proper assessment and to continue to look after them in a larger hospital should they need that extra level of care to manage a complication. That and that also brings me down to you and can't just operate and dump the patient right. You have to be around to look after them. So you have to be able to examine them, speak to them, see them after the surgery if they need you in an emergency. The other thing that I think was really impressive about the laws that you, I guess ASAPs was part of the lobbying process, was the new sobriety that's coming to the lexicon of surgery and mm. Um, social media and advertising. So having to refer to very big medical procedures by their medical names. Uh, it's not a tummy tuck. It's an abdominoplasty. It's not a mummy makeover. It's 12 hours of surgery from top to toe. And each surgery, each part of the body is a big surgery in and of itself. And the recovery possibly going to be six to eight weeks and Correct. so all of these you, you you might think oh these are just small changes but they're seismic changes when it comes to patient care patient advocacy um patient education and I, I'm wondering if you could speak to that and how that's changed um for you in your practice and mm -hmm. your colleagues. Yeah, so I love that you use the word sobriety and I think that was we, we needed to be woken up. 
you know, there was this unfortunate slippery slope that we all got caught up in where patients ceased to become patients. They started to become consumers and to be treated like consumers, right? But medicine is medicine and surgery is surgery and I'm still the doctor and the patient is still having a genuine procedure that has risk and complications associated with it. So there's nothing frivolous about it. So I think it's a very good move that the cosmetic surgery guidelines has brought in that sobriety and has made us go much more clinical in our social media posting and with our websites. So we can't use fluffy language like mummy makeover anymore. It has to be abdominoplasty and breast augmentation. Um, there is certain elements, I would say, where APRA has gone a little bit too far. And, you know, what regulations are like, we have to sway too far in order to bring it back to the middle. So, for example, we're not allowed to use words like restore and rejuvenate. Well, what's yeah, that, that was surgery? interesting. I thought that right? was interesting. Yeah. What is cosmetic surgery? Cosmetic surgery is altering a normal body part or facial part to improve its appearance, which is usually to restore or to rejuvenate. So there are certain elements that have been very frustrating for us. Um, and I fully appreciate the point of APRA and where they're coming from. I suspect that, I hope that with some feedback, we'll reach the happy medium. I currently see some colleagues who are being harassed and hounded by APRA and being nitpicked on the nuances of their posts. For example, um, now we have to have standardised before and afters. Um, and they'll nitpick if the patient has a tan in the before and doesn't in the after. You know, that's that's tricky. We can't ring up the patient and say, can you come untanned? Um, and I think our, con our consumers, our but patients... Can't you? Can, I, can I play yeah. devil's advocate for the consumer? Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to use the before and after in marketing, every woman knows that you look better with a tan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. The tan was in the before behind. I know, I know. Like, but I'm just saying if, if it's yeah. going to be used, it, yeah. it does definitely alter yeah. your perception of an image. So I yeah. know what you're saying. It's it's a lot of admin and it's a massive shift from it where is. you've been. Absolutely. But there were other things like you can't use emojis anymore. Yeah. Um, why yeah, is that? you can't use emojis anymore. You can't put your logo um, on the patient because that would be branding the patient. Um, we can't have um, social media influences, which I think is a really good idea. Um, I think the patient's stories should be genuine stories. If you've got good word of mouth, that's beautiful, but don't pay someone to give you good word of mouth. And on that same note, we can't have testimonials. And testimonials includes if someone writes a comment after one of my posts, great work. I've got to now get rid of it or turn off comments. So what happens with review sites? Are they now legal too? Does so, that constitute a testimonial? Yeah, they're okay because it's a third party hosting that. So a testimonial is if someone writes something positive about you on your own site or right. something you control. So a third party um, site like Google or Real Self is still, is still fine and still okay. And would you recommend that as part of the investigative process that a consumer or a patient rather sorry I won't use the word consumer <laughs> uh, no it's great it's a great nuance and I'm, I'm so pleased that as a as a patient and as someone who has had cosmetic surgery before mm. from a specialist plastic surgeon who whose consult process to me was impeccable yes um, I had five post-operative follow-up appointments yeah. Before my surgery, I was told of all the complications. I was given the opportunity to have my process. stitching revised if I wanted to at no additional cost. So many things that were, as you said, green flags. Like, uh, But I still had it. Even before the laws came in, my surgeon um, offered me a calling off period uh, and, and wouldn't take me on as a as a patient after the first uh, appointment so all of those things but again you know I was closer to the industry I knew the difference between a specialist plastic surgeon uh, and a, a cosmetic surgeon um so yeah all all of those things are are very very comforting for patients um let me ask you in addition to uh, looking for those letters, the FRAX letters, mm. and um, going over to check out the hospital website, 
where the specialist plastic surgeon has suggested this surgery will take place. What are some of the other places we can check to uh, if we're a bit embarrassed to ask the surgeon ourselves? Yeah, or we can do absolutely. A bit of research? So um, I think if you wanted to just do a check on your surgeon themselves, then the obvious thing is to just look at their titling, um, that they're a specialist plastic surgeon or specialist otolaryngologist if you're having a nose job with a rhinoplast, with the you nose and throat surgeon. So just check that they've got the word specialist in their titling. Um, but if you also wanted to just use another website, the asaps.org.au website will take you to a website of members of ASAPs who are all specialist plastic surgeons with an interest in aesthetic plastic surgery. Um, and they are some pretty th simple things to do. The great thing about the guidelines is that they also insist on a referral letter from your GP. And a GP is, like you and me, an insider in the system. So they are a great person who can also help you with the process of looking at who you should go see. Um, my GP wouldn't have known who to send me to. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't think my GP would have sent me. <laughs> she would have yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah. Because there are GPs and there are GPs, right? So I have certain GPs who are so well-informed because they're in that certain area of Sydney where they see a lot of patients wanting cosmetic surgery and they see the results. They are fantastic resources. They are like a mini real self or a mini Google. Um, and then there are GPs that you're right, they feel like fishes out of water. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know, but but they would still understand the titling and they would still understand the degrees that it takes to become a surgeon. Let's talk about what happens when things go wrong, because I think that that yeah. was the, the alarm bell for me when I was watching all the whistleblower content and um, all the things that we saw in the media and read about that whole investigative journalism piece, which was like, um, I mean, wow, Adele Ferguson, wow, what an incredible yes. piece of journalism. So impressive, yeah. So impressive. She's an amazing yeah. journalist. And, um, but the thing that was the most uh, heartbreaking, I would say, actually, was um, what happened when things go wrong because we are at our most vulnerable yeah. we are really so so dependent on the care and the goodwill of our doctor and the medical fraternity yeah. that if that part goes wrong it's it's cruel so true you know you get so emotionally involved with patients when they come and talk to you about when it goes wrong so, you know, the story that comes to mind for me is that I saw this lady who was 30 years after her botched breast procedure. And what happened after she had her breasts done by a surgeon who wasn't actually a qualified surgeon is that she got an infection, the breast implants had to come out. Her breasts then looked like, you know, she looked similar to a mastectomy patient. It was horrible. They were scarred, just awful. The, the, the squealy of that, is that her husband left her. She raised two sons by herself. I and feel it, sick it, even it, hearing this story. It makes me 30, so sad. 30 years to afford to finally get it revised. So the important thing is it's not just the physical consequences. It's that there is a social story and a financial story behind these problems. Um, and I think that's re really pushed the whistleblowers in the media and ASAPs to really want to do something about this because it's not just about botched surgery that can be potentially fixed in the public hospital system. It's about the social consequences after that. It's terrifying. What about overseas travel? Um, mm. You know, that was hot, hot, hot on the menu and yeah. very prominently advertised. Have there been any changes to the laws around uh, overseas doctors marketing to Australian consumers yeah. and patients? Because you can control our doctors, but what happens, you know, if we're being invited to go to the Philippines or Thailand for any number of things? Mm. This is the big problem now because our concern is that this increase in regulation and the guidelines is possibly going to fade force patients overseas because they can't be bothered getting the GB referral. They can't be bothered going and having psychological screening. It's so much simpler for them to just get on a plane and go to Thailand and have their breast implants. Because I saw something on TikTok just a week before we uh, got onto this, and this I, I wanted yeah. to ask you about this. It was a TikToker talking about 
um, the process of getting uh, access to your super to have an international surgery. And she was oh kind of God. detailing how to do this um, so that you could not only have said surgery internationally, but also access your super for it. And I thought, my goodness, like this is like a whole side industry that yeah. is totally unregulated yeah. Yeah, by the Australian absolutely. Medical Association. Yeah. And look, we we put this forward to APRA to say, well, the advertising guidelines and your guidelines only pertain to us. What are you going to do about the cosmetic surgery industry that's coming from overseas, penetrating our advertising and, and targeting our vulnerable patients? And they said, well, we can't do anything. It's beyond our jurisdiction. So I but we're allowed to do that with food. Like I know, yeah. you know, there are certain foods and alcohols and products that can't be advertised in Australia. So, I mean, surely uh, plastic yeah. surgery is something that they can control. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And um, I, I do believe that was a bit of a cop-out answer on their part. I feel that we, we do have the capability to stop that. Um, and so my response to that is that we would like to set up a international cosmetic surgery registry so that when patients do present to Australian plastic surgeons or to the emergency departments, those cases get documented so we can under identify how much is this a problem. Um, because it, if it is a significant problem, we shouldn't have to wait for Adele Ferguson to expose it. We shouldn't have to wait for there to be hundreds of cases of botched patients with lives ruined to bring it to APRA's attention. So we're going to start this registry to document how much of a problem it is so we can do something about it. It's still pretty scary for a normal individual or patient to escalate a problem that mm. they've experienced with mm. a medical professional. Yeah. And I'm wondering, since you are an insider of the, you know, highest level of qualification and probably you see men and women in the most vulnerable situations, what are our rights and what are, what is the course um, that we can take if we feel that, first of all, let's say we've feel there's a medical problem after our surgery. Let's talk about that first. Mm, mm. So, look, I guess the most important thing to say is that complications can happen in the best, healthiest patients with the best surgeon, the best anaesthetist, the best care. Sometimes we're unlucky and bad things can happen. In those situations, when I think about my patients who have had, you know, post-operative infections or bleeds, they end up becoming my closest and my dearest patients because what every plastic surgeon will do in that situation is draw them in closer and look after them even more carefully and make sure they're okay and make sure they feel supported. If you don't get that feeling after you've had a problem or a complication, then you can look into it further and you can complain. And what I would suggest to patients in that situation is firstly discuss it with the surgeon because there's always two sides to a story and sometimes just hearing the explanation can help you appreciate what's going on. Getting a second opinion from another surgeon is often really helpful to just give insights into the situation and what was happening there because maybe you just didn't understand in that surgeon's words what was going on. And then if you're still feeling like this was not right and I'm really unhappy, the next steps are to speak to the medical board, to APRA, and there is a cosmetic surgery hotline to call. Um, and they will usually, in New South Wales at least, defer you on to the HCCC. So what happens from a medical perspective if something goes wrong? Who's responsible for fixing uh you know, a botched or a unsatisfactory um, specialist plastic surgery procedure. Yeah. yeah. So these are one of the things that we talk about in our consultations, right? This is part of informed consent about the procedure and financial consent as well, because there's financial consequences to having to correct surgery. And what I say to my patients is, look, sometimes bad things can happen. 
Um, and if that was to happen, we share that problem together. I would not charge you to manage that complication and I will look after you. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that sometimes the hospital will charge them and they have an appreciation of those charges because they're paying those charges in their original operation. Um, but when it comes to corrective surgery or managing a com complication, most plastic surgeons would continue to do that without further charges. But there will be other charges that the patient has to consider from the hospital or blood tests or investigations. And I love that you're being so transparent about this because, again, we're talking about something that in addition to financial costs, has emotional costs, has time yes. costs, you know, uh, what, is, what is the rule of thumb for every hour of um, anaesthesis, you, you have five days of recovery. So it's yeah, not a simple yeah. thing. You have to take time yeah. off. You have to have yes. time to recover if you are emotionally disturbed by the outcome yes, or the absolutely. experience or yeah. the pills that you're taking. You need to take all of that into consideration. Maybe you need to arrange for care for your children during your recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So any any kind of um, investigation or, it, it, you know, whoever is looking into having uh, cosmetic procedures should think about not only when things go perfect, you know, green light all the way, yeah. but also what happens if it goes wrong? Am I in a position that I can handle this? Yeah. And why are patients nervous in the anesthetic bay? You know, it's it's that they do know that something could go wrong. Um, and, you know, most of the time it goes beautifully and it goes smoothly, but you're so right. I think it is important to play out. Okay. So if I have a problem, what what's it going to be like? And what are we going to do? I think it's an important scenario to play out in your mind. And then once you can actually work out, it's, it will still be okay because I trust my surgeon. I know they know what to do. You're going to be okay if it does happen too. Now, something, another big piece of news that's come through only in the past three weeks is that Queensland, the state of Queensland, has categorically banned and made illegal the use of the term surgeon if you are mm. not a FRAX qualified mm. surgeon. But the rest mm -hmm. of Australia has not. Yes. So the reason why it started in Queensland is that they are the home, I think, of the health practitioner regulation law. So it has to, that law had to start in Queensland to be introduced. What does that mean, that it's the home of the health practitioner? The, the Queensland, and this is such a complex system, and I've learned so much about Australian politics through this process, that if you want to change a law when it comes to health, it has to start with the Queensland government. So the steps now is that it's going to follow through into the different, filter through into the different other states. And with some of them, it happens automatically. And with some of them, they have to actually, I think, take it to parliament as well and pass the law. But the great thing about this is that, again, it's just bringing in that transparency for patients, because if APRA can't actually stop surgeons who aren't surgeons from practicing surgery, if APRA says they can't do that, then the next step is to at least improve transparency for patients. And the best way to do that is to only allow surgeons to use the word surgeon. Um, there are some people who are not FRACS who can also use the word surgeon and they are the ophthalmologists and the gynecologists. So that makes, and maxillofacial surgeons. So that makes a lot of sense too. Okay, so the rest of Australia is uh, a person who is not a qualified surgeon can still use the word surgeon. Yes. So, yes. again, it goes back to what we started off our conversation with is that we must know the difference. We yes. must get to know the difference. We yeah. must be vigilant in the content we consume and say, okay, so this TikToker or this social media post is advocating for something, but I now know the difference. I now know to ask the questions, is the doctor or the procedure they're talking about, who is it being performed by? How yeah. is it being performed? Where is it being uh, performed? And what happens when it goes wrong? Yeah. And look, I think everyone needs a checklist. Um, and we have a really good ASAPs checklist for patients that you can tick through. Um, it's really appropriate. You're not offending a surgeon to go through and say, which hospital do you operate in? Um, how many of these procedures do you perform a week? What's your complication rate? 
that is just due diligence. And you would ask the same thing of, uh, you know, any other specialist, um, how, what's my cure rate for my bowel cancer? How many leaks do you get? What's the percentage chance of death? You know, they are important statistics. I love you. that you've put it in that context, because I think also, maybe I'm wrong, but there's also a little bit of embarrassment or self-consciousness when it mm. comes to um, the question of vanity. And we were a little bit conscious of, you know, maybe I'm having this procedure for vanity. And so I, uh, you know, don't have the same vigilance uh, or self-advocacy as I would as if it was a health-related procedure. Yes. Because you're yeah. quite right. Mm -hmm. If I was having a health-related procedure, a gynecological procedure, you know, most women during obstetrics, we have a million questions and we're not embarrassed to ask the obstetrician. We we ask the questions. And mm. yet maybe for a breast augmentation or a hair transplant for a man or, you know, any number of, uh, or, or you know, an abdominoplasty or um, liposuction, maybe we feel, okay, this is, just for me, it's a, it's a bit of a vanity uh, procedure, so I won't ask the hard questions. Yeah, yeah. And patients often, uh, when they're starting the journey, they don't know where to start. Go to one of the organisation's websites, go to the ASAP's website, have a look at the procedure, find out the questions you should be asking and go through them with the surgeon. Uh, I think plastic surgery patients are incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-researched. Um, if someone has a hernia repair, they won't know what kind of mesh is used. Someone has breast augmentation, their surgeon would have talked to them at length about whether it's silicon or saline, the brand, the texturing, whether it's smooth, whether it's round you're or right. Tight. You're right. There is a, yeah. quite a bit of research that goes into that yeah. aspect of it. And you're right. It, it's nice to hear you uh, say that and acknowledge that, you know, a lot of patients do have a very high level of curiosity and research mm. before they come to choose their surgeon. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit because one of the things that I'm fascinated by is your area of uh, particular specialization, uh, which must be, uh, it's going to be very handy. And your area of passion and specialization is uh, body contouring post-traumatic weight loss. Yeah, I love it. I love it because it is that beautiful combination of both sides of plastic surgery there's the cosmetic component but there's also the reconstructive component because what patients are seeking after massive weight loss is to feel like they are normal right it's not such a big ask they just want to feel like that massive weight loss never happened and they just want to have a normal body and there are physical consequences to the significant weight loss. That's what I was going to ask you. What yeah. I, mean, I, I would imagine that, you know, um, loose skin and it's something yeah. we've seen and heard of before. Yep. The loose skin can really cause problems, not just with wearing clothing comfortably, but you can get heat rashes and infections from the skin rolls rubbing against themselves and chafing. Um, and then there's also the psychological issues. So, about 69% of people who have had a massive weight loss have some kind of underlying psychological diagnosis, whether it be anxiety or obsessive compulsive syndrome, because their body image is so insecure. Um, you really have to look after them, not just from the physical point of view, but really help them with their whole emotional and psychological journey as well. And so when you are working with a patient, do, do you also perform... Um liposuction procedures as well is that so are you part of that possible dramatic weight loss process yeah so liposuction the ideal candidate for liposuction is someone who's just got a problem area of fat so we don't really use liposuction to remove fat to help weight loss um, because that was one of the issues that was highlighted in the whistleblowing yeah, those yeah. massive yeah, um, liposuction procedures completely inappropriate so it's rare that I would do a liposuction procedure where I'm sucking away more than two litres, for example, because if it's a problem area, it's just going to be the saddlebags or it's just going to be the inner thighs or it's just going to be the love handles. So it's rare that I actually do big liposuction procedures because those areas will probably just have, you know, up to a litre of fat in one zone. Um, but the issues with the massive weight loss people, aside from the emotional consequences, is that they are a really big operation. 
Um, I, I describe it's like being a pilot in the A380 flying to London. Um, they're long operations because there is a lot of skin removal and there is a lot of suturing and we have to do that in a very safe way by balancing the procedures into three to six hour blocks at a time. So, sorry, three so, to six hour blocks. So how many hours are we talking in total? Yeah, so they usually have, if they're needing you know, a full body makeover from face all the way down to their thighs, it's usually three to four procedures. And we separate them by about three months to allow them to physically recover, get their blood count back up. And I think importantly, go back to work and feel like a normal human being again, before we start the next, next operation in the next stage. And once um, they've had those procedures what is the rehabilitation process is that something that you're involved with is is there rehabilitation for that amount of work yeah look it's amazing and the human body is just exceptional what it can put up with so you know you have you have a six-hour operation and you're leaving hospital three days later it's just phenomenal and The reason why they do rehabilitate so quickly is that we've got a team of physios and nurses looking after them in the hospital to get them mobile. Um, We obviously make sure that they're well looked after when they go home. They might need to continue physiotherapy and lymphatic drainage or massage afterwards as well to help their healing. But the main issue long term is scarring. So what can we do to get the best out of those scars? Because at the end of the day, if you're removing a huge amount of skin, that's got to result in a really big scar. I had a massive, I had an abdominoplasty, as I was saying, and um, that was, first of all, it took a long time to recover. And I actually found it really taxing. I found that, Mm. and I was super healthy. Um, I had great care. But it was it was a really long recovery pro- yeah. process, yeah. and my scar was enormous, like it's hip to hip, yeah. And um, and so after the recovery from the surgery, it, you know, my attention was turned to the scar treatment. So I can only imagine for someone who's had big weight loss and a lot of skin removal, yeah. not only is the recovery arms, very important, eyes. yeah, yeah, but also exactly. the scar. Uh, healing would be very important to them Um, but look it is the most rewarding thing Um, it is just the loveliest thing to see patients just their whole body image changes and I don't want to go as far as saying they have a personality change but they just have this really amazing image change um, and they're more confident and more happy and the nice thing is is that we do have those quality of life studies now that confirm that patients that go ahead with plastic surgery after massive weight loss do actually feel an improvement in their quality of life. I actually interviewed Dr. Tony Pikus, who's uh, a psychologist who specializes in uh, body issues and body dysmorphic issues mm. relating to cosmetic procedures. And Obviously, with the new APRA uh, laws in in place to protect consumers, one of the key diag- pre-surgical uh, diagnostic tools is to check for uh, possible dysmorphic tendencies. Is that correct? Yes, correct, correct. So it's nice to talk about also the positive outcomes, the positive psychological outcomes. But I'm wondering if you could talk about the diagnostic uh, component pre-surgery and what yeah. what that entails and and how it benefits um can, you know the patient now using the screening tools yeah so one of the guidelines and this is something that a lot of us were doing even before the guidelines um, came in is to use a psychological screening tool to identify if the patient's got some underlying diagnosis or body image issues that would mean that they don't get any benefit out of plastic surgery. So as Tony explained to you, if you have body dysmorphia, which is an abnormal perception of a normal body part, so you have a beautiful nose, but you can see something that no one else can see about it, um, that patient might not benefit from plastic surgery. And in fact, you might make them worse by introducing a new problem for them to focus on as well. Um, the other psychological issues that we see are anxiety and depression. Um, and then there are the social issues as well that we just need to explore to make sure that their partner is supportive, that they're not doing this surgery in response to 
their partner leaving them or the recent death of a family member that's just left them in a bad place and they're just looking to perk up their mood. So, so it's these not are the, a haircut. It's not it's like a, a post-breakup yeah. change yeah. of colour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We'll go to Joe Bailey for that instead. So, um, you know, you've just got to make sure that the patient's well supported and that they're psychologically ready to go ahead with this. Um, I have referred quite a few patients onto psychologists before the screening was introduced and after the screening, and it's never with regret. You cannot have enough support. Um, and the nice outcome is sometimes we do pick up people on the screening who don't have any issues at all. So they've had to talk to a psychologist and I've wasted their time with that, but it's so much better knowing that they're okay. It's like doing a mammogram before going ahead with a breast reduction, right? Okay, I put you through a mammogram. It was unpleasant. It was uncomfortable. It was expensive, but I know you don't have breast cancer now and we can safely go ahead with a breast reduction. Dr. Amir, I'm so grateful that there are doctors like you um, operating in Australia and I'm so grateful that we're able to have the deep dive about the changes that have happened, particularly in the surgical space. I would absolutely urge anyone who's listening to visit the ASAP's website. There's so much information there. Um, and I've said to ASAP's members before, I know that you are always talking about this, but on our side, on the patient side, on the consumer side, on the layperson side, it often takes hearing it many different times before mm -hmm. it, it it matters to us and we absorb that information. So I'm really encouraging anyone who's listened to this podcast, who's curious to learn more, to just check out the website. There are so many resources and it's all free. Thank you. That is just a perfect summary. Yeah, it was wonderful to have you on the show. I Thank really you so appreciate much. Your time I love talking to you I appreciate too. your candor as well. So let's um, welcome the new uh, era of sobriety and professionalism and patient safety. I'm deeply grateful for your time today. Thanks, Baha. Here, here. Bring it on. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that.